Please be seated. I have never done that with my cup before. Sorry about that. So we were in this series and we're talking, looking at Hebrews and last week we had one of those tough passages and we're going to touch on that a little bit this morning and then keep on going. And here's the challenge as you walk through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is kind of a long conversation. Sometimes as you sit and you read through a book and you work on a book or even as you hear preachers preach through a book, they kind of deal with sections and they kind of go and it's kind of an easy section. One section deals with this and then another paragraph or another section starts and you kind of shift gears and you go. The challenge we're walking through right now in Hebrews is as it's a long, steady conversation, one part building on the next. And so as you go from week to week to week to week, it's sometimes tough to maintain the continuity and the flow of all that's going on. So let's just kind of touch on some of this again. The writer, as he's talking to the Hebrew community, we're talking, so as we say the Hebrew community, we're in particular talking about the Christian Hebrew community, those who, who are Jewish in their heritage, Hebrew in their heritage, but have come to a point in their journey where they put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And something is going on in some of that community. Something is being communicated. A challenge is being given. And so as the writer is writing, he's talking to that community. He says, listen, I want to remind you again and again and again that Jesus is greater. But what is taking place in the Hebrew community is that something is being communicated, something is being taught to them specifically, where some of them are taking some steps backwards from Jesus, and are taking some steps backwards from living the faith and embracing Jesus the way that they should. And so as the writer of the Hebrews is leaning into this, he talks about how Jesus is greater than the angels. He's talked about how Jesus is greater than Moses. He's talked about how Jesus was one of us and became one of us so that he could take our place. And he's walking through all of that. And in that process and in that conversation, as he is walking through these things, the writer of the Hebrews is also laying down a series of challenges. And these challenges are daunting. And as Connor walked through one of those challenges last week, it's a very intimidating challenge. Because as we just sang, I am a child of God, the challenge that is being given by the writer of Hebrews is asking the question, are you a child of God? And he's leaning into that whole conversation. He's pressing into that whole conversation. And the reason he's saying this is because some of you that have stepped back, you think you're a child of God, but you're not. So you need to examine yourself. You need to look at yourself. You need to weigh this thing through in your life because you think you're God's child. You think you're a follower because you know all the stuff. You, you have... You've gone through membership class. You have gone through class 101, your class 1. You've gone to class 2. You've done all these different things. You've jumped through all these hoops. You've talked to all these people. But you've never really come to the point where you've made that transfer of faith. And as we finished last week, I commented on that. As a young teenager, I knew all of the gospel. I knew all about 
communicating to people what they needed to know to come to a point in their journey where they would come to faith in Jesus. But I had yet in my personal journey to come to that point where I put my faith and trust in Jesus alone. I was still trusting other things. I was trusting that I was a good young man. I wasn't rebellious and stupid and stubborn like my brothers. Okay? Grandpa was a minister. So, and I went to church on a regular basis, and so I was kind of good. I listened to mom and dad. I wasn't belligerent. I didn't argue. I was the compliant one. I did all the right stuff. I was this good kid. And so as I wrestled through all this stuff, I was leaning on those things as well as knowing all I needed to know about Jesus. But I had not yet come to that point in my life where I put my faith and trust in Jesus alone. And I said, okay, I'm going to stop trusting being good. I'm going to stop trusting that grandpa's got us connected. I'm going to stop trusting that I'm going to church on a regular basis. And I'm going to trust Jesus alone. So as the writer of the Hebrews is writing, they're individuals because of the pressure that's going on in their community, because of the things that are being taught, because of the things that are being said, they are backing up and they're creating some distance and space between themselves and what the gospel teaches. So as we walk through things this morning, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to read through what Connor talked about last week. And I'm going to pick up then in verse 9, and I really want to look at verses 10 and 11, and then walk through down to the beginning part of chapter 7. Three little sections that we're going to walk through, and as I have wrestled through that this morning, I'm going to answer three questions this morning, and if you have your notes, you're going to see those three questions in your notes. What is the writer saying? Because it's tough sometimes to just pair down 0.1.2.3.4.5 all that kind of stuff so what is the writer saying there's a series of things he's saying that I think stand out in this flow of the conversation that's taking place number two why is it important to the original reader we have to understand that the book of Hebrews was not written to you and me directly Now, it's inspired by God, and so ultimately it is for you and for me. But as the writer writer of the book of Hebrews wrote the book, he had a specific audience in mind. He was thinking of the Hebrew Christians, and he was writing specifically to Hebrew Christians. So what was he seeking specifically to say to the Hebrew Christian community? Why was it important for them? And then we're going to ask the question, then, okay, so how does this apply to me? Why is this important for me today? It's 2,000 years later. Why is this conversation an important conversation? Why did God inspire this writer to write this letter? And why did God keep it in, that, in the canon of Scripture so that we today, 2,000 years later, would be reading it, looking at it, thinking about it, and asking how does this apply to us? So we're going to ask those questions, and we're going to try to answer some of those questions. Before we do, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into it. Father, I just thank you for the time you give us this morning. I thank you for your richness, for your goodness, for your graciousness to us. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we walk through this, I'm also going to say this. I'm not necessarily going to talk all about what he says, then talk about why it's important to the original readers, and then talk all about why it's important to us. We're probably going to throw that all through that mix. 
So as you take notes, you can kind of fit it in the spots where it fits on the note page for yourself, where it's going to kind of all kind of flow together, but hopefully it'll all make sense in about half an hour. Fair enough? All right. Let's look at this here. And I have to get my spot. I... You know, it's really fun sometimes when you read, you, you use a, a digital Bible because sometimes you think you have it where you want it to be and it turns out to be someplace else. All right, I'm, in, I'm where I need to be. So here's that hard conversation that Connor talked about last night that he walked us through. And it starts in verse 4. And again, there's a series of these conversations that take place. A number of these hard conversations. We're not going to have another hard conversation like this until chapter 10. We've already had a number of them that we've talked about. But this is probably the hardest up to this point in time. He says, For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who are once enlightened who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. Now again, you ask the question, why is he writing this? Why is he writing this? He's writing this and he's writing to these people who have been identified themselves as Hebrew Christians and he's writing them, but he, what's taking place is some of these people have fallen away. Some of these people have backed up. Now, some of them have... You know, some people take two steps back, some people take five steps back, and some people take a hundred steps back. So there's some people here who have kind of taken, because the stuff is going on, they've taken a couple steps back, but there's some people who've gone way far. And particularly, he's talking to them. Because these are people ultimately like who I was before I put my faith and trust in Jesus. And as Connor said last week very accurately, that he's writing and ultimately I'm talking to those and talking about those who don't have a relationship with Jesus. But he's also writing to these Hebrew Christians because the, the community all thinks they're saved. But there are people in that community who are not saved, who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, but who are hanging out there on a regular basis thinking they're good because they're associated Okay, now, we've heard this whole story. You decide, I want to go hang out at the fish market. I like it there. I'm going to hang out there. I'm going to put a seat there. I'm going to start to live my life sitting in the fish market. And in particular, I like the shrimp section. Just because you hang out in the shrimp section of the fish market doesn't make you shrimp all right you're still a person sitting in the shrimp market and just because you hang out at church doesn't make you a christian it's your relationship with jesus that makes you a christian and so as he's writing he's putting that challenge and he's communicating that and laying that challenge down it's a tough one to hear so, this is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt for the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. I'm talking about these people who have faith receive a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles and the rain instead of producing good things is producing thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Heavy, heavy language. 
that challenge that says you, you should examine yourself to make sure you're not producing thorns and thistles. So as people are standing here starting to back up, you producing thorns and thistles or are you producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? What's being produced? And again, the evidence is going to bear itself out. And so then as he goes on to the next section. So even though... We are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. He's shifting gears. Now he's coming back and he's saying something that's encouraging. He says, I know that people have backed up. I know that there are some people who have walked away, but overwhelmingly I want to say, say to you, I am confident that you're in Christ. Now, he gets on to verse 10. For God is not unjust... He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints. What kind of fruit are we talking about? We're talking about the good kind of fruit going on here, right? Not the thorns and thistles. We're talking about the good kinds of fruit. Now, your work and love you demonstrate by his name, by serving the saints, and by continuing to serve them. Continue on. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. Here's what he's saying. Listen, guys, I want you to stand up and stay connected. I want you to not back up, but lean in. Don't back away. Stand firm and lean in to this calling. And as you lean in, that gives you confidence that indeed you're not Dismissed and under judgment, but rather the blessing of God continues to rest. Now, and so that you won't become lazy by the limitations of those who inherit... Let me correct words. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promise through faith and perseverance. Talking about the process of what happens here. A true Christian... A true follower of Jesus is going to demonstrate faith and perseverance. They're not going to back up and back away. They're going to lean in. They're going to lean in. And they're going to stand firm. Faith and perseverance. The writer is writing and he's extending that challenge. And as he's writing and extending that challenge, he wants the readers to recognize that they are facing a crisis and a challenge of faith. And as they are facing this challenge of faith, they have the option of backing up and creating space and distance between them and Jesus. And if they are backing up and creating space between them and Jesus, he is saying, I caution you, be wary, because if you choose to create space between you and Jesus, the reality is you may not even be in Jesus. Don't do that. Rather... Exercise faith and perseverance. Stand firm and lean in. Do the leaning in. Practice faith. Do those things. So all of that is in this context of the big conversation. Because he started in chapter 5 talking about Melchizedek. He started talking about the priesthood. But as he starts this conversation, he's talking to them. He says, but guys, you haven't been growing up. You have been acting childishly. You have been acting with immaturity. You, I wanted to be able to feed you, and I wanted to be able to talk to you about things that are beef, 
and potatoes and vegetables. I wanted to give you hearty meal. Instead, I have to give you formula and warmed milk because you're still on baby food instead of adult food. And so he then comes to this challenge. He, he leans and says, listen guys, where are you in your journey? If you are who you called yourself to be, if you are indeed who you are identifying yourself to be, you would be growing up. You would be reaching maturity instead of backing up. You would be leaning in with perseverance and faith, growing deeper, instead of just skipping along the surface and not really putting down deep roots in Jesus. So then he comes back to the conversation about Jesus and Melchizedek. And he starts and he says, For God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Now, do you ever have a conversation? And somewhere in that conversation goes, swear to God. Swear to God, that's what I saw. Swear to God, that's what happened. Swear to God, those are the things that took place. As a person does that, they're trying to say, as God is my witness... If God were here, he'd be saying the same thing. And he is swearing by, he's not cussing, okay? He is identifying, he's using God as an external authority to say, what I'm saying to you is legit. What I'm saying to you is real. Well, God had a conversation with Abraham. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham, I want you to go to this particular place. And as you get to that particular place, I want you to know that I'm going to give that space, that territory, that area to your descendants. And I'm going to make your descendants as great as the sand on the seashore. And when God finished that conversation, let's continue. swore by himself. What did he say? And he's quoting scripture here and it says, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. Did he say, I swear by Moloch. I swear by the great sea. I swear by the gods of Egypt. He didn't do any of that. He said, I. He is swearing by himself. Why? Because there is no higher authority in all of creation than God. You see, when we swear by something else, we are trying to pull that authority and have it legitimize and validate the thing we are declaring. But Jesus, but God, did not have a greater authority to validate what he was saying to Moses. There was himself the greatest authority, the only high authority. No other gods exist except the God of creation. And so he said to Moses, or Moses, I'm getting my characters all confused. Abraham, 
said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to do what I said to you. I promise to do it. And I swear by myself, I will do this. In verse 15, and so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. And then he goes on and he explains it. He says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. That's their trump card. So when someone says to you, God is my witness, they're throwing Trump. Okay? They're saying, It's real, it's true, it's real. Now what drives you nuts is when someone's God is my witness and you know they're lying to you. You just want to smack them. Okay? They're trying to play Trump, but they got a faulty hand. But God does not have a faulty hand. For it's for them a confirming oath that ends every dispute because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise he guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things it, in which it is impossible for God to lie we have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us the promise and the oath two great things the promise and the oath now this is really super important for the Jewish community because this is at the core of their identity the Jewish community finds their identity in their heritage with Abraham and they find their identity in the call of God of Abraham and God saying to them I am going to bless all nations through you everyone in the world will be blessed through you and I'm going to make you a great nation all of the Jewish community finds their identity in the promise of God to Abraham now this is at the core of what's going on with these individuals being challenged to step away from Jesus See, they are being challenged to back up. Someone is teaching something that's saying to them, don't look at Jesus, don't rest in Jesus, rest in your Jewish heritage, rest in the teachings of Judaism, don't embrace Jesus. Step away from Jesus and step back into your Jewish faith. And again, as he's writing, he's dealing with the power of their heritage. Now that same power of heritage applies to us because it is through Jesus that we are blessed. Okay? The child of Abraham, but also the fulfillment of all that the Jewish law and all that the Jewish system put together. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the promise of all of that. Now, what promises do you hold on to? 
You've had promises given to you in your life. Our culture tells you all sorts of things. When you see a beer commercial, does it promise you you're going to become an alcoholic, you're going to lose your family, you're going to lose your home, and you're going to run over somebody and kill them? Is that what it tells you? Not at all. Our beer commercials tell you, have a beer. It's great. It's less filling. It doesn't fill you up. It doesn't make you fat. It tastes great. You can be the life of the party. You can have a wonderful time. Nah. You're not going to get drunk. You're not going to hurt somebody. You're not going to make stupid decisions. And you're not, nothing bad is going to happen. See, it makes promises to you that are just not true, that are just not real. Because we know the reality. We know that as we know in our culture, there's a huge problem with alcohol. We were just talking before the service. I'm amazed at how many individuals and how many families have major alcohol problems in their family history. Why? Because you've been told a promise that's a lie. There's all sorts of promises that are being told, by the way. How about another promise? Be promiscuous, there's no consequences. Kitchen STD, you can go get medicine to deal with it. You find yourself pregnant, you can go to the doctor and get rid of it. And yet all these things are lies. This is part of why our culture is screaming bloody murder that Roe versus Wade was overturned. Because now, part of the consequence now has been distributed back to a state decision instead of a federal decision. And they're upset about that. Because now part of the consequences of choices now are no longer pervasive in the country and the freedom to be to get rid of that unborn child now the consequences are heavier and different. And so as we wrestle through this promises are given understanding and perception is going on. It says, so because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things it will be, which is impossible for God to lie. By the, you hear that part? It's impossible for God to lie. He's not going to lie to you. He's not going to deceive you. Now this is huge. Because as he's talking to the Jewish community, he's saying, guys, the things that God has told you so far are true. God's not going to lie to you. And God doesn't lie to us. Now again, in our culture, they tell us that God lies to us. Don't listen to God. Don't follow God. Don't have to, you don't have to pay attention to God. Those guidelines that he gives you in his word, those instructions that he gives you in his word, those, that framework to, to guide life that he gives you in his word... Don't listen to it. You don't need to follow it. It doesn't work. It's, it d- doesn't apply. You can live differently than that. That's a lie. 
God gives us teaching in his word. God gives us instruction in his word. God talks to us about how to deal in personal relationships. God gives us encouragement and God gives us direction on how we should manage our money. God talks to us about how we should deal with as we date and as we get married and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, and across the board, God gives us a lot of instruction on how we should live. Now, God, as he does that, he does not do this in a heavy-handed way, and he holds this club over our head and says, do it or else. But what he does do is he said, listen, do you want to know fulfillment in your life? Do you want to know peace in your life? Do you want to know joy in your life? I've had this conversation with individuals at different points in time. I would encourage you to look at Galatians. You see the fruit of the Spirit being talked about there. And in that whole conversation, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, but it also talks about the fruit of the flesh. And so I would ask you this question. What kind of fruit do you want in your life? Do you want the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control? Are those the kinds of things that you want in your life? Then the scripture says to you, then live by the power of the Spirit. But you can also choose to disregard living by the power of the Spirit, and instead you can live in the spirit of the flesh. And what comes in the spirit of flesh? What comes in the spirit of flesh is arguing, grumbling, fighting, disagreements, and all sorts of other negative things that come from that. Now the world says to us, you don't need to listen to God because God lies. And that's not true because God, we just heard what Jesse just said, God does not lie. And so as we walk through this, he's saying to the writers, guys, you need to understand, God is not lying to us. And as we sit here and listen, we need to understand, God does not lie to us. And yet we are encouraged and inclined at times because of sin, because of a sin nature, to give God doubt and a question and a challenge instead of taking him at his word. We who have fled for, for refuge, so let me, let's, so he has these promises, these things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. What's going on? Guys, you have the opportunity to hold on and live in hope instead of backing up. You can rest in Jesus. He doesn't lie. It's secure. It's promised. And he's sworn by his oath, his himself. It's firm. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Guys, he's saying, listen, don't back away. Hold on. Be firm. Encourage one another. Support one another. And lean in. You're being encouraged to back away. Don't do that. Lean in. We have an anchor for our souls. Something that holds on to us and keeps us firm. 
establishes us secure in Jesus. And why is that there? Because Jesus, as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, has gone into the heavenly temple, has gone behind the curtain, i.e. the Holy of Holies, and has offered a final sacrifice for you and for me that is eternal, that covers us, that protects us, and that secures us for all of eternity. Guys, you can rest in the promise of God. You can rest in the finished work of Jesus. Now, here's what's going on. The Jewish community is wrestling with Jesus being the sacrifice because they have grown up in the law. They have grown up in the Jewish tradition. And the Jewish tradition says the sacrifice was made at the temple. And they were not getting the idea and they were not comprehending that God had given us a a model. But the model is not the real deal. It's a mock-up. Most of us have not gone to engineering companies and had them do stuff and had them make up a a model. Now we've done a couple things over the years. Somewhere around, floating around our property, probably over in that area, um, is a picture of what the church could look like. This picture was done around 30 years ago. It was done for the church by an engineering construction firm because the church was looking to do an addition. And so this company painted a picture of what the new building would look like. And you look at that picture, you say, boy, it looks a whole lot like our building. But there's little nuances that are different. Now, most of us have seen something like this on TV and we actually haven't lived through it. But when you have high-powered, high-money projects, sometimes what they do is they have someone who's crafty and good with their hands, and they actually create a mock-up of what is going to be built. So like when the Twin Towers came down, I am almost positive that as they started to talk about the redevelopment of the area where the Twin Towers came down, probably someone, because so much money is involved, somewhere in high-powered meeting rooms, someone showed up with this thing on a big piece of paper, big, big, not piece of paper, but a big thing, and they walked in and they brought it in, and it was a mock-up of what the new towers would look like and what the development of that area would look like. And they, and they had the, the foundations from where the Twin Towers were to see the memorial that would take place, and they would have a picture of the new buildings that would be built around it. They would probably have some people walking through the grounds. They would have some benches, and they would have some stools. They would, they would have the, the mall that would be put in, and that would be developed and they would have all of that kind of stuff developed right there and so as the people with all the money and the people kind of driving the project they would walk in and they would go oh isn't that beautiful isn't that amazing and they would walk around the thing and look at that oh that's so cool and oh we can do this over here and and they would talk about they would have their ideas and they might kick out some ideas and some thoughts and so well maybe we can tweak it here maybe we can adjust it there but it would give a picture it would give an idea it would give a concept of what it's going to look like of what it's going to be when it's done 
And what the author is going to start saying to the reader is, listen, you need to understand that the Jewish faith, the process of Jewish faith was a pathway through which God was revealing himself, but it's the mock-up. It's not the final product. It's a picture, it's an image, it's a representation of what God is planning on doing. But it's not the final product. Now, maybe there's a museum someday, and we'll walk into that museum, and as we walk into that music up near the Twin Towers, where the Twin Towers were, I guess it's Freedom Tower now, and all that kind of stuff is, and we might walk in, and we might see the mock-up. Someone might have resurrected or found that thing and put it in there, and we can walk around and say, this was the original concept. This is the concept art to give an idea of what would take place. And we might walk around that and look at that and say, this is kind of cool. But then we go outside and we look at the real deal. The mock-up was interesting. The, 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 the presentation piece is curious. But what's really important, what's really amazing is walking outside now and seeing it done. Walking around the park, walking around the memorials. That's what's really interesting. And that's what you're really there to see. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, where Abraham rescued Lot because Lot and his family were carted off by when he was living in the cities and, and, and Abraham got his soldiers, they went and captured them and, and rescued them and all the people from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities that were there. And as he was coming back, Melchizedek met with Abraham. First, he says, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Hugely significant. King of righteousness... King of peace. Boy, is that imagery or what? It's part of the mock-up. It's part of the design for us to get a sense of, of what is going on. And the indication is that Jesus, King of righteousness, King of peace. Because Jesus is a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. And, and, and the author is writing to the Jewish community. He's writing to these Hebrew Christians saying, guys, you need to understand, Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. And as we sit here today, what do we need to recognize? Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. Jesus is the one who brings those things into our lives. And again, all around our world, we have people giving us promises. This is how you're going to find peace. This is where you're going to find meaning. This is where you're going to find righteousness. This is where you're going to find justice. Man, big words in our culture today, justice. You're going to find justice in this area. Or you're going to find justice in that argument. I, the, 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 the whole cancel culture idea is based somewhat on the idea of bringing justice. 
The whole idea partially of cancel culture is to say, we are going to call out people who are doing the wrong things. We're going to call out people who need to be identified and we're going to bring justice by canceling them, by identifying them, by highlighting them and letting everyone know that these are despicable human beings or this is a despicable organization across the board. And that's part of the whole idea of cancel culture. And people have bought into that. I was listening to one text a little bit ago. A person was having a disagreement with another person and he said, not that I'm asking you to cancel them. But because you have a disagreement, you want to cancel somebody? Or maybe suggest maybe canceling should take place at some point in time? Who made you the arbiter of justice? Who you made you the decider of what is right and wrong? Who placed that kind of authority in your hands? To call others in our culture and others in our world pass judgment and punishment because you've disagreed with somebody. But we have wrestled with this whole thing in our culture. It's huge. But he's writing and saying, Melchizedek, king of justice, king of righteousness, and by that intonation, identifying that Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek, identifying again, Jesus is also the king of righteousness, king of justice. You really want to find justice? Do you want to put justice in a neighbor's hands or do you want to put justice in God's hands? Without father, mother, or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now there's a lot of discussion about this particular verse and this whole conversation here. So the question is, is this a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? And most people are saying no. And what they say really is that, listen, we don't know where he came from. We don't know his lineage. And this is the only snapshot we have of him is this conversation and this event taking place as he meets with Abraham and as Abraham goes to him as as Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek as he offers sacrifice and as Melchizedek gives a a tithe back to him this is the only window that we see really the conversation and the events taking place with Melchizedek but he's a picture, he's part of the mock-up and identifying to, to us Part of what God's agenda is for what he is going to do. And then he presents a huge argument. Because again, we talked earlier, right? That Abraham is huge in Jewish culture. They draw their identity from Abraham. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without, but one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. 
without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek is blessing Abraham. Now, the promise of the law flows through the lineage of Abraham. Here is one who has no lineage, no clarity, but is greater. And the greater blesses the lesser. And Melchizedek is blessing Abraham. And part of the argument that the author is making is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than the law. Melchizedek is greater than the the high the priestly system. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. If 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 the one case In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. In the sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still with his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And you come to the end of chapter 6, and what does it say? Talking about Jesus, a priest, a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We're going to look at this more next week because it's an ongoing conversation. But the writer is saying to the reader, listen, I understand your tension and someone is talking to you and someone is spreading lies to you and they're trying to say to you that Jesus is inferior, Jesus is secondary and what you really need to do is you need to go back to your Jewish traditions, you need to go back to your Jewish heritage and you need to embrace the Jewish faith. And because of that, some of you have stepped away. And as some of you are stepping back, as some of you are stepping away, I want to caution you and I want to warn you that as you do that, you may actually be identifying that you're not indeed in Jesus. And you need to examine yourself to really find out and and ask, are you really in Jesus or are you not in Jesus? But I would encourage the reader, he's saying, I would encourage you to lean in. And it's as you lean in, and as you don't step back, but as you stay firm in your faith, and as you stay firm in your walk with Jesus, and as you lean in, you can rest in the assurances that Jesus has an anchor for your soul, and you can rest in the promises that God has given, because he has given you the promise, and he has sworn on an oath by himself, no higher authority, and God does not lie, so when he makes you a promise, he's going to keep it. There's no higher authority by which someone is going to be held accountable than himself. He's going to do the very thing that he says he's going to do, which is to be an anchor for your soul, draw you to himself, and give you eternal life. And why can he do that? Because Jesus, as a priest of the order of Melchizedek, has entered the heavenly places, he has entered the heavenly temple, and he has offered a sacrifice on your behalf that is eternal, that is placed in the places of heaven, not in an earthly temple. Now you are being told the line that the mock-up is greater than the building. 
You're being told the lie that the mock-up is what's important instead of the real deal. You need to understand that Jesus is the real deal and that the Jewish traditions and faith is the mock-up pointing to the real deal that was coming. Now as you wrestle through this, you need to understand that a priest on the order of Melchizedek is greater than a priest of Levi. Because the greater blesses the lesser. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And because Levi is part of Abraham's lineage, he is being blessed by Melchizedek. He is not superior. He is inferior to Melchizedek. Jesus is greater. So we bring it back to today. And this whole conversation is taking place. This challenge to stand firm in Jesus, to not back up, but rather to hold on to Jesus, to embrace Jesus, to embrace the forgiveness and life that Jesus brings. All around us, we have things clamoring for our attention. All around us, we have things that are saying into our lives, are whispering in our ears, Jesus is fine. He's okay. But do you really want to base your life and your existence and your fulfillment and your satisfaction on walking with Jesus? Do you want to base your eternal hope on walking with Jesus? And golly, Ned, which is a Sirach term, by the way, golly, Ned, is that even real? Is, is heaven even real? Because our, our culture tells us today that we're just elevated animals. We've all just evolved from nothing, and when we die, we cease to exist. And so we should grab all that we can grab today, because when we close our eyes at final time, it's all done. And this talk about heaven and God and all that kind of stuff is foolishness anyway. See, that's one of the lies. It's one of the things being whispered in our ears. This is some of the stuff that's being whispered into our lives. Back up and create a little bit of space between you and Jesus. Create a little bit of space between you and this faith in Christ. And I want to encourage you to lean in to stand firm and to embrace Jesus I want to encourage you to hold on to Jesus even more because all around us we don't have the same lies being whispered we don't have the same challenges being whispered as we're being whispered to the Jewish community we have a different set of lies we have a different set of whispers we have a different set of things being taught but they still are encouraging us to back away. And Jesus is still saying to us, hold on to me, embrace me, because I am the anchor for your soul, and lean in. Don't step back, lean in. That's the challenge for us to wrestle through in our journey. Every week, we get beat up by stuff. Every week. And all week long, we are being challenged to step back.
Jesus says, lean in. It's Communion Sunday. And as we kind of gather here for Communion Sunday, by the way, if you have not received, just raise your hand and someone will stop by and, and get you a elements for Communion. But as we lean in this, and I would encourage you to take this top part and just open this top part until you can take out this little wafer. See, the mock-up, the imagery being given in the Jewish tradition, in a Jewish example, there was evidence and there was that picture of forgiveness and that picture of sacrifice that needed to be made. And throughout the years of Jewish tradition and throughout the years of, of Jewish practice, goats and bulls and doves and lambs were being sacrificed to provide a covering. But they were just the mock-up. They were the picture. They were not the final real deal. But as Jesus stood with his or sat with his disciples around that upper room table, he looked at them and he says, Guys, This wafer, that piece of bread that you saw introduced for Passover, this, the, the, this pattern in this tradition you saw about forgiveness and rescue, it's about me. It's about me. I'm the one you hold on to. I'm the one you look to. And guys, I want to let you know, you don't understand this yet. You don't get it yet, but I'm about to go to Calvary. And I want to let you know that all of history has been pointed to this point in time. All of history is looking to this moment. And this represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. And he said at that point in time, do this in remembrance of me. The challenge for us is to remember. The challenge for us is to lean in. Not to back away. But to lean in. And to remember. Let's partake together. He then said in the same way, it's the scripture say he took the cup and he blessed it. And he gave it to his disciples and he says, guys, you need to understand something. Soon after Passover took place, right after that, you left Egypt. And a little while later, you went to the mountain and I established a covenant between you and me at that, knee, at that mountain. Moses went up to that mountain. He came down with the Ten Commandments and, and through other things I, I communicated some of my expectations. He says, guys, we established a covenant between the Jewish people and God. It's an additional covenant. There's a series of covenants that God made with the Jewish community, with the Jewish people. And this was the covenant of the law. But guys, I want you to understand something. You have been looking at this old covenant, this old promise. The, you've looked, been looking at this sacrificial system that Moses established. But guys, as he's looking at his disciples, this cup, 
This cup represents a new covenant. This represents the final covenant. Guys, a covenant in my blood. A covenant that's no longer written on tablets of stone, but rather a covenant that's written on our hearts. Guys, a covenant where it's no longer necessary to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice because I'm about to go to the heavenly throne room and offer that sacrifice there once and for all and forever. Never for that to be offered again. And guys, this represents a new covenant in my blood. Because, guys, the imagery and the pictures and the mock-ups that you have seen through the years, it's now time for the real thing to arrive. It's time for the true thing that all of that has been pointing to to be presented. He said, guys, I want you to partake of this. And that as often as you take it, partake, you declare my death until I come again. Let's partake together. These elements are the picture of the gospel. Jesus going to the cross and taking our guilt and punishment on on himself that final sacrifice, taking our punishment, but then conquering sin and death and giving us life. I don't know where you are today. But I want to encourage you today to embrace Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, as you listen to all the noise that's happening around us, I want to encourage you to lean in. You're being challenged to kind of step away. You're being challenged in our culture and in our world to kind of treat Jesus from arm's distance or further. But the writer of Hebrews and Jesus would say, lean in. Lean in. Lean in. If you want to talk with someone about resting in putting your trust in Jesus and and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm going to be here. Connor's going to be here. Jot something on the communication card as the offering plate's about to come by. Let me know and we'll follow up with you this week. But don't let this day slide by without embracing Jesus. The challenge is for you to embrace Jesus, to lean in. Let's pray together. Father, I want to say thank you for your richness and your goodness to us. And Father, I want to say thank you that Jesus offered that final sacrifice. Father, I thank you that Jesus is greater. And that as we lean on him, as we rest in him, we indeed have an anchor for our souls that keeps us secure, that holds us to you. Father, I just think of that passage in John 10 where it talks about how you hold on to us and Jesus holds on to us and nothing can separate us from you. Nothing can cause you to let go. Thank you for that richness that we have in Jesus. And Father, help us to lean in on you. Father, now as we take this offering, as we prepare to head into the balance of this week, to celebrate time with family, to celebrate the fourth tomorrow, Father, be honored in us through this week. 
be glorified through us this week and be honored and glorified as we give back. I thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.